Well, thank you guys for gathering with us here at Mission Church. If you are new to Mission today, uh, thank you for gathering with us. My name is Eric Baker, and I'm one of the elders and a member here, and I'm very thankful, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, um, with holy pride, um, thankful to be a member here um, at Mission Church. Um, today, we start uh, about a year-long journey uh, through First and Second Timothy. And so I would be encouraging you to read uh, weekly uh, passages of Scripture inside of 1 Timothy um, as we look at this continuation of what's happening in the church at Ephesus. Um, all of last year, we preached through the book of Exodus, uh, excuse me, Ephesus, beginning in a few chapters in the book of Acts, as we see the planting of the church at Ephesus that was um, a very pagan place, a very sexual and moral place, a place of witchcraft and mysticism. And uh, this man named Paul plants this church there. And uh, in doing so, just fell in love with them. He spends more time there than he does at any of the other church plants. He ends up spending about three years there building up this church and this metropolis in hopes that it would plant churches that plant churches that plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. And so Paul always has this uh, attraction, this love affair with the church at Ephesus. And so he wants to make sure that they are taken care of. And so after planting it, he eventually writes a letter to remind him of who they are in Jesus, that they are in Christ alone, and if they are in Christ alone, that there is a life and a church that is built uh, in that identity. And we spent the entire last year as a church working through that letter that Paul wrote to the church there at Ephesus. Um, after leaving Ephesus, Paul continues on these journeys of planting the gospel, which in the fruit of that is the planting of these churches. And as he's traveling um, he um, to these different places, he is continuing to disciple men and women alongside of him. Some of those are pretty well-known men. Uh, maybe you've heard of a guy named John Mark. If you know anything about the New Testament, there's a letter in there called Mark um, that is written by a traveling companion of Paul. Um, the doctor, Luke, um, who wrote the, the Gospel of Luke and also the book of Acts. Again, traveling companion partner, disciple of Paul, uh, a guy named Silas, um, and a guy named Titus, and then the guy that we're going to focus on for this almost this entire year up through October is this young man um, named uh, Timothy. And so Paul um, continues on these journeys. It's between three or four journeys uh, that Paul goes on, and in doing so, will kind of leave people in different places. And guess what, brothers and sisters? They did not hold true um, to what Paul had initially preached to them in the letter of Ephesians. So a few years later, Paul is deeply concerned for the church at Ephesus, and he takes his young Padawan, sorry, Star Wars joke number one, and uh, tells this guy named Timothy, hey, I want you to remain there, and I've got some things that you need to do. And it's going to be crucial to the life of this congregation who have wandered from the truth. And so, Timothy, I need you to stay there and to preach the gospel. And we'll get into several of those things. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of 1 Timothy. And inside of 1 Timothy, um, he has a typical greeting that he has. And also, just so that you know, this will be very introductionary driven, um, casting kind of where we're coming to. We'll come back to several of these issues that I'm going to mention specifically later on in the sermon 
in more detail as this year progresses. But inside of 1 Timothy, Paul has a, a typical greeting that Paul normally has when he's writing to a person or to a place. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God, our Savior, and Christ, of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Paul loves Timothy. He is a spiritual son. Um, it's believed that uh, Timothy, or the Bible tells us that Timothy had very faithful grandmother and a very faithful godly mother, um, but that it appears as though his dad is probably out of the picture. It also appears that his mom was probably Jewish and that his dad was Gentile. And so in probably more than one way, many of us have um, biological dads but a lot of us have been influenced by other men or women inside of our lives that we would consider maybe our spiritual father. Paul thinks of this young man as that. Um, Justin and I have often uh, joked um, throughout our relationship, because I've known Justin since he was the crazy guy in the back of that picture, um, and uh, have seen God radically change that now older man's life. Uh, but he was a young man. And so I've often said, man, when I asked Pastor Justin to come alongside with me at the very beginning of planting a mission, hey, let me be Paul here, you come be Timothy, I die, it's you, all right? Uh, so that's the legacy. Um, we just got to make sure that Pastor Todd handles all administration, Pastor Justin preaches and teaches, does MCs, all right? That's the deal, right? I croak, that's what happens. Everybody got that? So let it be said, so let it be done. All right, there we go. So uh, we have those sorts of relationships, the beauty of that, okay? The goals of those things, of just this legacy, as Paul is going, he is making disciples. He's planting the gospel in these men. He's planting the gospel in these people so that what? They can reproduce that gospel. He loves this young man. And when you're talking about young, we're probably talking like in his 30s. All right? So Paul loves this young man. And he continues on. Uh, Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. It's believed by some scholarship that, that Timothy may have been a little bit timid. Um, he is stepping into a scene uh, where he is going to be handed a lot of responsibility. And I know that this may be surprising to some of you guys, but pastors typically really want to be liked by people, and yet God has put us into a position to where we are often not. And Timothy appears in some cases, there's some allusions here, that Timothy was probably a little bit timid at addressing, especially if they were elders, like, and I'm not talking about elders in, in the, regards to pastors, but elder, older people within the church, and addressing um, older men, older women, um, saying things like, what you're doing is wrong, right? If you want to make anybody mad at you, tell them what they're doing is wrong, what they believe is wrong. And uh, that immediately puts a target on your back. And this is part of what Timothy is called here to do. In verse 3, it says this, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote yourselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation, rather than the stewardship 
from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and good conscience and sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So Paul tells Timothy, you stay here. All right? The church at Ephesus has wandered. They have forgotten who they are. Even after all of Paul's um, attempts to remind them through the letter at Ephesus. And yet a few later, they have drifted from center. And what is the center? Christ Jesus, the gospel. And they have drifted from that. But much like on an airplane, one degree off of where you're supposed to be going and you will end up in the ocean. One degree off. Okay? And so the church has done this. This should not be, um, or it's, it's foreshadowing of this situation. If you remember back to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, after Paul plants the church at Ephesus, after spending three years with them, he goes to leave and then he swings back by because something is on his heart. It's in his gut. It's, it's gnawing at him. He loves those people, but he's got to tell those elders. And so he calls the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verses 30, 29 through 30. And he, this is what he says. Years before he writes this letter to Timothy, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among you, own selves will arrive men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So between five and ten years before 1 Timothy is written, Paul already knows the danger of the church. The idea of false teachers and a false gospel is mentioned over and over in many of the letters. Peter is going to address it. Paul addresses it on many occasions. Galatians is another one of those books where Paul does that. Even Jesus, speaking to his disciples, is warning them. And I'll share some more of that as we go along. What's happened in Ephesus is false teachers have arisen. They're speaking twisted things. They are drawing away people from the actual gospel, the actual center of the gospel, the gospel truth. See, brothers and sisters, that for, for many of us, or the church's greatest enemy is not often found outside of it. But the church's greatest enemy is often found inside of its walls. Without course correction... Our future, our legacy as a church will be far from the center of the gospel. So Paul charges Timothy with the responsibility of, of doing, what does he say here? Charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The word charge there is a military um, term. It's a command he charges them. This is your mission at all costs. Even if it's unto death, go and charge. Keep men in the church. Keep people in the church from preaching a different doctrine than that which was preached to you. 
keep the gospel at the center. Now, we get this big long list here of several different things that um, are taking place. And uh, I'm not going to try to dive into each one of those because honestly, um, we don't really know all of the details of what they were trying to teach in those things. But we can see the effects of their teaching on those things. And we can see several of them as we're going to learn even more as we go through this book this year. But in the first 10 verses, we see the effects of the false teachings. Listen, in 1-3, it says they're teaching a different doctrine. In 1-6, it says that they're swerving from a pure heart, a good conscience, and sincere faith. In 1-6, it says that they're wandering away into vain discussions, myths, genealogies. In verse 7, it says their lack of misunderstanding and misusing of the law. And in 1-10, that they're practicing something contrary to sound doctrine. So though we don't know all of the nuances of what does Paul mean when he's talking about endless genealogies or, or myths or promoting of speculations, we don't know all those details and I'm not going to try to speculate on the speculations. But I will try to give you some sort of it, maybe, a, a maybe, please write this, it's a maybe, maybe an example of that is, you guys remember the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown? few years ago. It was an extremely popular book, probably New York Times bestseller. They even made a, a movie about it, and it was this all this speculation that Jesus, when he came, that he was really in a relationship with, with um, Mary Magdalene, that they were having intimacy, that they were possibly married, that they had children. And so the, a lot of the, the genealogy there is trying to tra- trace back the lineage. Are you related really to Jesus? Like, are you one of Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandkids? All right? Now, you may be able to get on Ancestry.com and swab your lips and send it off to them, and they may be able to tell you your family tree, and let's all face it, we would brag too. Um, but they're getting all wrapped up into these things, and it's leading them away from sound doctrine. It's leading them away from a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. It's leading them into all of these vain discussions and myths and genealogies. They're, they're misunderstanding God's law, and they're, they're misusing God's law, and they're practicing. Not only do they know something that is false, but they are, it is leading them, their false teaching is leading them to false living. And this is a very serious thing that Paul is going to address and that we as a church are going to address over and over and over and over and over in this next season of life. See, brothers and sisters, false teachers, like false converts, are false both in what they say but also in how they live. False converts... And false teachers are false not only in what they say, not only in what they believe, but also in how they live. This was a major concern of Jesus. As he is teaching that band of brothers, those disciples, he tells them in Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, Beware false prophets who will come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their 
fruits. False prophets, false messengers. And how will you know that they were false messengers, false prophets? By their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. And yet Paul is urging Timothy to preach sound doctrine, to preach the gospel, to charge them not to do that. But for him to, to, to preach in such a way that at the center of it is, is love. That, that a true elder, a true member of a congregation, a, a true pastor, a true follower of Jesus should, should not be preaching false doctrine and living falsely, but, but they should be a, a man or a person that is, is full of love, that issues from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. What is a pure heart? It means it's from the right motives. What's a good conscience? Well, from a biblical perspective, a good conscience means this, that God approves and other believers in the community would approve of that doctrine and of the way that that person is living. A sincere faith that their actions reflect the gospel. As the age-old churchy up station, or statement says, that they practice what they preach. And lastly, that they would use the law rightly. In 1 Timothy verse chapter 1, verse 8 through 11, Paul continues here. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it, what? Lawfully. That if they use it rightly. So that means that there is a wrong way to use the law. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that the law is meant for three primary reasons. One of those is to protect us. It's a, it's a governing system, all right? It helps society and culture know what is right and what is wrong, okay? Secondly, it reveals to us a, a desperate need for a Savior, that we can't live up to all of these laws, that we can't be 100% perfectly faithful toward them all, all the time. And so what does the law do? It reveals to us, man, we need a Savior, and then lastly, it still provides a moral framework for us to live. If you'll notice these sins that Paul lists out here, um, if we continue reading here, it says in verse 9, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. In accordance with the gospel, the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. If you'll look at those sins and if you will compare those to a lot of what's happening inside of the Ten Commandments, there is often a, correct, uh, a, a correlation between those very laws inside the Old Testament, uh, in the Big Ten even, and the things that Paul is listing. But these men, these false teachers within the church, and we're going to find out later that some of these are even ladies, that they're saying that they know about things, that they're getting wrapped up into these things, and yet all of that is swaying the church away from the gospel of Jesus. 
there is false teaching and false teachers within the church. And that this cannot be happening. That we as believers in Christ must always be coming back to who is Jesus, what has he done, and the goodness of his work and trusting of those promises for our lives. Now, is anybody surprised that false teachers and false teaching has come into the church? Now, I think in reading an ancient text like this, it's, it's really easiest for us to think about, well, that was then. And that it's not happening today. That we don't have false teachers in our churches today. And that we don't have false teaching in our church today. That we can easily kind of glass over and think that that is always out there or it's always on the television. And yet Mission Church, my prayer today, and as we're going through this, se- this season and this, this series, is that we would be humbled at the realization that all of us are susceptible to becoming, one, false teachers, and committing to believing a false gospel and false teaching. We can get really caught up into things that just really do not matter. Every one of us, every, we must take the gospel seriously. We must take the preaching of the gospel seriously. We must hold that line as, 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 as we've seen in, in war movies, specifically those where in ancient times where people had shields and, and that front line were to hold the shields and you hear out in these, these commanders and these warriors telling the, the troops to do what? To hold the line. We, brothers and sisters, must hold the line in the gospel. We must guard the gospel because it is the gospel that is under attack and it will be the gospel that is the first thing that is thrown out as we become just glorious in the worshiping of Christendom while Jesus is outside of the church knocking on the door. And it is easy for me and it is easy for you, brothers and sisters. Right now, 2019, right? You can go see the holy tunic that Jesus wore right before his crucifixion. You can can go and visit the holy lance, also known as the the spear of destiny, which not to be confused with the, the pick of destiny, and if you know what that is, Thank you, Tenacious D. Um, but it's the actual spear that was rammed into the side of Jesus. Guess what? We've got that in a shadow box in England. And you can go see it, and people are going by the droves to see that. And it's not really it. Did you know that you can go right now in 2019 and go see the very crown of thorns that was placed on Jesus' head? You, you can... You can, you can go and see a bracelet that was made out of one of the nails. It was placed into Jesus' wrist or feet. 
Is this crazy? People are doing it. Let us not forget, in 2004, the Virgin Mary showed up on a piece of grilled cheese and was sold for $28,000. You can look at a cloth that wiped the sweat from Jesus' brow. We've got that. Now, for all the young people that understand like hyperbole, all right, and sarcasm, we don't really have those things. People are claiming that those are those things. The Shroud of Turin, has anybody looked at that stuff? I mean, we, they make great discovery in National Geographic documentaries on all that stuff, and people just flock to it. They believe it. Man, this is the hair follicle of the Apostle Peter. We should share some of that. All right? People are following false teachers in droves. People are getting caught up into tons of, 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 of just speculation and, and, and myths, and, and they're spending more time trying to figure out if there were dinosaurs on the ark instead of understanding that the ark ultimately represents what Jesus is going to do and that those who are in Jesus are safe from the wrath of God. But they're trying to find it on a mountain in a foreign country, all the while while missing Jesus. Take a personal survey. How many of you guys believe what I'm about to tell you is crazy? All right? Here we go. How many of you think this is crazy? That You believe that, that God was uh, once a man. And he was a very faithful, enlightened man on another planet. And he became so enlightened that he eventually got to become the God of this planet. You think that's crazy? Can I please, from the frozen chosen, get an amen towards something? Do you think that's crazy? Thank you. Whew. They do not believe in the Trinity. Um, that, that Jesus is not God. But, but rather, he is the, the greatest and the best and the first created being of God. That eventually God came to earth, this God who is a man, and eventually had sex with Mary. Do you think that's crazy, church? Did you know that within America, according to the latest survey by Lincolnir Ministries, that 78% of evangelicals, which is what we're considered in this room, 78% believe Jesus was the first and greatest created being by God. What about this one? That Lucifer and Jesus are spiritual brothers. And guess what? Not only are they spiritual brothers, because they were both created by God, but you and I are Jesus' spiritual brothers and sisters, and we're Lucifer's spiritual brothers and sisters, because before um, the sperm met the egg, which eventually produced you, guess where you were? We were all with God as souls pre-existing. And eventually, God sent us to earth. You think that's crazy? I, I hope so. Do you think it's crazy that Jesus came to America after his resurrection and, and preached to the Indians? 
Do you think it's crazy that since God was once a man, you too can become a God? Do you believe that salvation by works is true salvation? Now, if you're not very familiar with your cult understanding, all of those are the beliefs of the Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, also known as the Mormons. Listen to me. Guess how many Mormons there are in the world? 15 million. Guess how many Southern Baptists are in the world? 15 million. Which, if we do Southern Baptist math, really means probably about 5 million. Do you understand that? As many Southern Baptists are in the world, their claims to be Mormons who, who believe all those things that I just said to you. An equal amount of Southern Baptists and Mormons on the planet. And we're, we're sitting here and we're thinking, man, it's, it's crazy. How could anybody? Those are just, you know, small little numbers of, of people living out in the desert in Arizona who are all hugged up wearing the same kind of clothes and Nike tennis shoes. And we call those weirdos and they're, they're all in these small little cults. No, they're our neighbors. If 78% of people inside of evangelicalism, which is what, what you and I are considered to be a part of, 78% of them believe that Jesus is a created being. Then false teaching and false teachers is a cancer, not only in the New Testament church, but it is a cancer inside of this church that we must be on guard against. That we must be on guard against. So easily. Many of us are falling in love with the Jesus wearing an American flag that is never seen inside of the Bible. It is never seen that way. We must be aware of that. We must be humbled by this. This realization that if Jesus is warning about false teachers and, and, and false teaching and its influence on the early church, and Paul is addressing it, he's already experiencing it, that there's false teachers in the very churches that he planted. The Apostle Paul and people are drifting. People are wandering away from the gospel. They're getting tired of just hearing the, the same old message. We need something else. We need something new. All these sorts of things. If, if they're drifting, and then Peter, when he addresses the church that he's writing to, and he's addressing false teachers, then brothers and sisters, we must as well be, be enlightened and prayerfully by the Holy Spirit that he's going to continue to keep the scabs away from our eyes as, as we are all seeking that. Man, we got to come back to the gospel, brother. Come back to the gospel, sister. Don't stray in those ways. But, but if we're going to argue and if we're going to wrestle, let it be over the gospel of Jesus Christ. That if we're going to get in a fight, that both of us say, Hey, don't come without your Bible. Don't come without your Bible. Because that's what we're going to press into. And that's what we're going to do. This morning, I'm going to kind of 
throw out um, generically in big sweeping motions, and we're going to come back to these over the course of this year. But I believe that there are seven, at least seven, false teachings that I am hearing whispering of inside of this church and inside of the American church. And one of the responsibilities is Paul is telling Timothy, right? He's charging this guy, hey, bring them back to the gospel. Bring them back to the gospel. Tell some of those people who are preaching and teaching, hey, hey, you, you cannot be doing that. And if you're going to continue to, then there's the door. See, brothers and sisters, one of the responsibility of your elders is to shoot wolves. It's to shoot wolves. As we're caring for you, as we're watching for you, as we're listening to you, we're also looking. Because it's a responsibility. We've been charged with this task. And so today I want to throw up these. I'm going to be a good Baptist today because they all start with P. So if you're taking notes, that's going to help you out. And don't get freaked out about seven points. I know you're like, oh, we know you. All right? Like I said, I'm going to blow through many of these and come back to them. Current false teachings. The first one, and these aren't in any certain order. It's performance-based salvation. Performance-based salvation. Our tendency by nature is to, are to be legalist. Our tendency by nature is to be religious. Our tendency by nature is that we must work our way to earn God's favor. That we, by checking these boxes, will one day be saved, yes, by the grace of God, but ultimately by my works. I was a good person in teaching up at Western whenever I asked students the question of why would, should they be saved or why would they be saved. Nearly almost every time a student will look at me in the eyes and say, it is because I am a good person and I'm not as bad or I don't do as bad of things as these people. That is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. There are only two religions in the world. It is the religion of grace or the religions of work. And the religions of work are always and are constantly trying to invade. And there are total Christian churches that are completely centered around what you must do to be saved. I know, I grew up in one. 19 years of my life. And no one was calling it a cult. No one was calling it false teaching. No one was calling it false teachers. But there was a complete misdirect of what it meant to be in the gospel of grace. It is rampant in our culture. The second one. Popular belief or progress in culture. Popular belief and progress in culture. Popular beliefs are constantly chiseling away at our faith. The other day, I told our members at our membership meeting that I like to go to coffee shops and work because I don't have a, an office. So many of those places become my, my office. And a lot of times, I put in headphones that allow me to listen to other people's conversations because I'm not listening to anything in my headphones. 
And I was uh, sharing a story the other day about me sitting in Starbucks here on Scottsville Road, and there were a group of ladies sitting next to me, enjoying, having a great time. And as I was eavesdropping, I don't know if that's a sin or not, but I was doing it. One of the ladies set out this. That may be the way it was in Bible times, but it's not like that now. So it's not true for us. It may have been like that then, but things have changed. We've progressed. And isn't this what our constantly our administrations are saying is that, man, we're, we're progressing as a culture. One, we're getting better. We're taking further steps. We're, we're absorbing. We're, we're opening up our, our culture to all of these things. We need to be, you know, really receiving of all, everything. It may have been like that in the Bible. And then there was the ping-ponging back and forth of, well, I think this, and I feel this, and I feel this. And if you were to ask them off, are you guys Christians? I guarantee you every one of them would say yes. Because they were meeting for a Bible study. And I never saw a Bible open. I feel this. I believe this. I feel this. And then there was one lady who said, well, me and my husband, we live our lives like this because that's what the Bible says. And you could feel the tension in the conversation. Popular beliefs are constantly chiseling away at our faith. How many preachers did you once listen to who are no longer have sound doctrine? Ladies, how many bloggers did you listen to who no longer have sound doctrine? Who are absorbing. Our culture's changed. We need to embrace this. We need to embrace this lifestyle. And maybe we think, man, this is, this is out there. 44% of evangelicals believe the Bible's uh, the Bible's kind of prohibiting of homosexual behavior doesn't apply to us today. It was true then, but we've, we've grown. We're more enlightened. And so what was wrong then is no longer wrong for us. In no way is that meant I have friends that are homosexual. I love them. And I can love them and believe that they are wrong. Not because I've determined that they're wrong, but the Bible says that it's wrong. And I trust the Bible. It is my authority. But it also tells us what? Paul aimed, the aim of the charge is love. Not hatred. This week I gotten caught up into a church. Pastors have a tendency to do that. It's like watching Making the Murder for Netflix, but it's, it's about pastors. And it, this does not exist, but this is really happening inside the world. It doesn't happen on Netflix. I don't want you going home today looking for it. 
But I know of this really fundamental pastor, and if I was to mention his name, many of you in this room would know him. He's, he's worldwide known. He's known as the hate preacher. Fundamentalist, King James Version only kind of guy. Will stand up in his pulpit, and if he finds out that you've been saying anything about him um, or, or doing anything wrong, he's the kind of guy that calls you out. Now, I have been tempted, but I haven't done that yet. Except to my wife. All right. And I mean, they're, they're, they're the kind of people like, you know, I'm not talking about Westboro Baptists either. But these are guys and preachers in churches that use hate speech in the pulpit, use hate speech on television, use hate speech on the sidewalk. And they're always talking about how bad all this, this uh, all the sin is in the world, which, again, it, it is sinful, but there's a lot of hate, not love, spewing from these people. And this week, they lost one of their pastors because they caught him with prostitutes, drugs, and gambling. See, that our temptation is, is to always be preaching about something while secretly living in another sin. We must be careful of those things. Popular belief. So the first thing was performance salvation. The second thing was popular belief. The third thing is the prosperity gospel. Prosperity gospel. All right? That's a very popular belief. That, hey, if you really have faith, then, then God is going to give you a bunch of stuff. Heard stories this week of, of people of taking up offerings and, and leaving it up at the offering and then telling the congregation, our responsibility is to give you some money. So if you need some money today, you can come up here and grab this. Not that, not this church. Okay. There are all these sorts of things, this prosperity gospel that that man, if you are just faithful, if you love Jesus, then he's gonna give you a beamer. That he's going to give you a big mansion. And that if you don't have those things, then ultimately you're not truly a follower of Jesus because his desire is to bless you with material worth on this planet. And many of us are looking at that who are, 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 have not fallen into that sort of mentality. And we're thinking, man, that's disgusting. That is wretched. That is terrible. But brothers and sisters, we need to understand that the prosperity gospel is not only about the collection and the consuming of earth material things. It is not limited to material possessions. Have you ever said something like this? I'm a follower of Jesus, but why do I not have a good marriage? Why? Because your expectation is, is that if you are a follower of Jesus, he is going to prosper your marriage. That is the prosperity gospel. Why aren't things easy? For me, I follow Jesus. I remember those days, crying out to God, shaking my fist. I'm a pastor. What do you mean about this? I've, I've had conversations with people. Well, I used to be a Christian, but I'm not any longer because God took my grandmother away from me. She died. All of that is the prosperity gospel. This idea is that, that Jesus died so that we could have an easy life or, or, or something that is known and had full kind of um, circles a, a few years ago, several years ago, was the name it and claim it, right? 
So you could drive by a house and you go, that's my house. That's my car, right? And somehow God was supposed to give it to you because of prosperity. When we have a refusal to not give up blank for Jesus, that's the prosperity gospel. And brothers and sisters, you, you don't have to go far because that is probably the leading, spreading, counterfeit gospel throughout the world that was birthed in America. And if you go to Africa right now, it is all over the place. I remember one time I was pastoring at a different church and I said something about a, a gentleman uh, named Creflo Dollar, if you know who that is. And these people got just really, really mad at me. Even here at Mission, in our early days, we had a person who was attending here. I've told this story before. And after a sermon, a few days after, um, we were talking. We had to talk through some things. And at the end, though, it quickly changed directions and trajectory in the conversation. Because in the Sunday prior, um, I had said something and called out a prosperity preacher's name and given quotes of how that this is not the gospel. And in our conversation, she said this to me, who do you think you are to tell us or to speak against these men? And I said, well, ma'am, I'm the pastor of Mission Church. That's who I am. And God has given me the responsibility to do that. We didn't see her again. We did not. But that's what I'm supposed to do. That's what Pastor Todd is supposed to do. That's what Pastor Justin is supposed to do. If we come to you and we, and, and man, we hear you quoting people on your Facebook page or, or read, it is not in this idea that we are trying to be dictatorial over you. We're simply trying to be obedient to what God is saying. There are much better books to read than maybe what you're reading that are solid. And it's our responsibility to do those things. It's not trying to govern you. I got enough going on, brothers and sisters, to worry about. And it is so awkward, as these brothers can tell you, it is so awkward to tell people, man, their favorite TV preacher or the person, their blogger that they're reading or the book that they're reading is probably not the best for them. But in this flock, it is our responsibility. And again, we can all drift toward the prosperity mindset. We can all drift toward the performance mindset. The next one, pragmatism. What is pragmatism? If it works, then it must be right then we should do it as the church. Not fully trusting in God's plan and methods, we become overtly attractive to reach the culture. I have done so many things in ministry that I'm ashamed of. I told my youth group, this is when I had a full head of hair. Um, I was about to lose my job as a pastor, if they, and they told me if I didn't get more kids there, then I was going to lose my job. And so I started coming up with all of these practical ways to get people to come or students to come to my youth group because I wanted to keep my job. And I remember telling them at one time, if we, ever met, if we got it to like 200 students, I think is what it was, then I would shave my head. And lo and behold, they did it. Who knew it would be my future? 
All right, it's just practice for another day. Pizza parties, I've given away Xboxes. Why? My job was never in fear of me losing it as long as there were bottoms in the seats and the baptistry was constantly being used. And I was scared to death and shamefully, confessionally today, I want you to know that is sin. And yet I still feel that tension all the time. What do we got to do? What do we got to do? What do we got to do? We got to get more people here. We got to do this. We got to do this. I, I heard last Sunday there was this um, preacher, and he was trying to use an illustration, and so he, he brought in a hurdle. Anybody see this in the news this week? He, he brought in a hurdle, and throughout the sermon, he kept talking about, I'm over it. <laughs> All right? And then he preached the morning and said, I'm over it. <laughs> and he kept raising, you can tell what kind of church this is. It was awesome. Um, what I'm about to tell you is awesome. And he kept raising it and raising it. And he said, uh, you know, there's going to become a point in time in your life where you can't just be over it. You got to have some help. So they wheeled in a trampoline and they set it in front of the hurdle. And the preacher gets way back and he runs and he jumps. And as soon as he steps on that trampoline, whoo, and he busted his noggin. He got slain in the spirit, all right, right there on stage. But we feel that tension all the time. See, all, all y'all me like, oh, I got to find this. All right, you text me later and say, thank you, Pastor. I didn't hear anything else you said. Pragmatism. Bigger and better. What you win them with, man, we got to get, I remember the days when it's like, we got to have third day to come to our church if we really want to reach them. Man, I've been a part of sweaty dudes ripping phone books, blowing up water bottles. I mean, I was waiting for women to take off their shirts and throw them on the stage. That's how crazy. It looked way more like the WWE than it did a worship gathering. But people were there. Every head bowed, every eyes closed, right? Because that's what you got to do at the end of these things. Got to fill out this card. We got to make sure this is successful. And we feel that tension all the time. Pragmatism. We attempt to draw people. This is reflected in the millions of dollars spent on stuff that doesn't really matter. You guys have heard my story. When I went to my church in Arizona, their plan, which I quickly offended them, the church was going to build a church that had a lazy river around it. Hey, I'm all for a lazy river. <laughs> right? Grizzly River Rampage it to death. It has its place, but not at this place. Why? Because, man, we've got to have more people come. A.W. Tozer says this, Pragmatism is satisfied with present success and shakes off any suggestion that it, it works may go up in smoke on the day of Christ. If you have Behold Your God, that workbook from the first one, I encourage you to go look at that. There's a whole week talking about pragmatism inside of that Bible study that we did a few years ago. 
Number five, plurality. What is plurality? All religions lead to the same God. 2018 survey, Lincoln Air Ministries. 51% of evangelical Christians believe God accepts the worship of all religions. Please don't tell me that this false teaching and false teachers is for an ancient time. It's for now. So performance, salvation, popular belief, prosperity, pragmatism, plurality. Number six, practical. The false teaching of practical. What do I mean by that? Pastor, just tell me how to live my life. How do I save my marriage? How do I make sure that my kids turn out well? We are, yes, brothers and sisters, are to apply and practice but many care more about just the steps to quote-unquote success than we do the motives and directives behind them. Case in point, all the self-help books in the world, all the self-help books at the Christian bookstore. And seventh, I'm sure that there's more. I was trying to be cute with all the peace. Seventh one is passivity. The false teaching of passivity. And what do I mean by that? Simply, I'll be obedient later. I'll get to my Bible later. When I get older, I'll be a better I'll be a Christian then. Teenagers, when I when I become an adult, that's I'll really get serious about my faith about Jesus then. I I'll learn that Bible. I'll get to a Bible reading plan later. I'll share the gospel with them later. I'll give faithfully my time, talent, and treasure later when it's a little bit easier or I get some other things worked out. It's the false teaching of passivity. Each one of those things, each one of those seven things, I'm going to come back to Pastor Justin, Pastor Todd, those who preach, will come back to as examples for us. Brothers and sisters, we must guard the gospel. We must guard the gospel from these things and a plethora of other things. How do we guard the gospel? Some application here. How do we guard the gospel? We must know the gospel. Paul mentions doctrine seven times in 1 Timothy. I love this quote from Dave Mathis from DesiringGod.com. He says, The greatest defense against false teaching is a local church community that knows, enjoys, and lives the Word of God and holds its leaders accountable. Brothers and sisters, for us to guard the gospel, we must know the gospel. And this is not just for those of us who are called pastor. You must know the Word. If you don't, I, I am charismatic enough and have the gift of woo enough that I could lead many of you astray. And you would not even know it because you do not know the Bible. And that's scary. That is scary. We must, to guard the gospel, must know the gospel. Two, to guard the gospel, we must preach the gospel. I'm sorry if you get tired of hearing about the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. But it is, as Paul would say, of utmost importance. It's the only message we got. It's the only sermon we've got is Jesus. And we need that weekly reminder that it is all about Jesus. We must 
preach the gospel, brothers and sisters. Third, to guard the gospel, we must live the gospel. We must know the gospel. We must preach the gospel. We must live the gospel. The gospel is at the center of everything. We must have sound doctrine. But as we've talked about earlier, to have sound doctrine means that we're going to have a sound life as well. We must be on guard of our doctrine and devotion very carefully. That those two things should be lining up. That we progressively, we know what to do and we are constantly praying that our heart's motives will catch up to our minds and our hearts. That we're longing for this, that we're living for this as we share with our membership on Wednesday night, brothers and sisters, that we will be hearers and doers of the word. It is both and, not either or, because the gospel is under attack, brothers and sisters. It is under attack every day of your life. As soon as you wake up and you look at that phone, I want you to know that you are under attack. The gospel is under attack. Your affections are under attack. And we must learn through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the community of faith to constantly be coming down and and chiseling back down, coming back holding the line for the gospel of Jesus. It is your only hope. It is my only hope. I'll leave you with this quote from Lincolnier after the survey. I believe I've sent that to you guys. After the survey, when the last paragraphs, it says this, the 2018 State of Theology survey reveals deep confusion about the Bible's teaching, not only among Americans as a whole, but also among evangelicals. There is something very long wrong when a majority of Americans can give the correct answers to basic Bible questions and at the same time say that their beliefs are purely a matter of personal opinion. These results show the urgent need for sound biblical teaching and the bold preaching of the gospel. Millions of people do not understand the holiness of God, the reality of sin, and the one way of salvation in Jesus Christ. There is much work to be done. And that is true of us here at Mission. We are going to be a gospel-centered people, a gospel-centered church. We are going to preach the gospel. We are going to plant the gospel. We want to have gospel-centered marriages, gospel-centered homes, all of those things that reflect the gospel. And we're going to pray that God would keep us from wandering into and drifting into silly myths and genealogies and speculations and misuses of the law. And as we just encourage each other to fall in love with a familiar once again. We've got to fall in love with the familiar once again. And what is the familiar that we often lose our first love of? The gospel. Let's pray.